One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to bluenile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at bluenile.com for $50 off. bluenile.com code LISTEN. This podcast is supported in part by the Bertha Foundation. I'm recording my part of this podcast on the lands of the Gundungara and Darawal people. Sovereignty was never ceded and we need a treaty. Let's start the podcast. A podcast about politics for people who hate politics. This is Julia Zimiro Asks Who Cares. Hello, Julia here. And look, yes, I can hear what you're thinking. You're thinking, really, Julia, do we need another podcast out there in the world? And in essence, I agree with you, we probably don't. But for the next six months, once a month, there's only going to be six of these, I'm going to be here on the Irrational Fear podcast feed having conversations about getting active and using powers that you actually do have to make maybe a small change in your world. And I'll be chatting to civic leaders from all walks of life to find out how they got active. This episode, we're speaking to Mark Kelly and Sally Rugg, both champions of activism in their own way. And when I say activism, I mean, you know, that's taking direct action. And when I say take a direct action, it can be as bold uh, as going on a march or holding a sign and chanting. But if that's not for you, you do know that stuff can also be just making a phone call or writing an email or a letter of complaint because you care and you're worried about uh, other people in charge who might not be caring or not seem to be anyway. We're first going to chat with Mark Kelly. Now, Mark was the founder of the Vote Tony Abbott out campaign. I know. He created a community-driven movement to find an independent candidate that might go against Tony Abbott and provide an option, provide a voice that matched the electorate. And you might have noticed over the last uh, little while the voices of groups, there are many electorates around the country who have started a similar grassroots movement to sort of find out what do people actually want in their community and maybe they can find an independent candidate who um, will represent them. It's just another option. So Mark Kelly is an activist really that started by um, writing a few emails. He's also a surfer. 
He's lovely. I'm really good. How are you? I'm good. Lots of lots of great things happening, so I'm smiling. I'm glad. I'm glad to hear it. Mark, I heard you speak on a podcast about what happened in Warringah, and I guess what uh, interests me is how you went about that, but also uh, part of why I'm doing this is that I feel like my activist gene has woken up through a variety of things, through the Women's March, through things not happening in Canberra. But I guess with you, what is it about what was happening in Warringah that made you decide you would care and put your head up above, you know, the parapet? I think the big one for me in the beginning was really the same-sex marriage plebiscite that we sort of had to have, which would cost $22 million. But anyway, Warringah was the second highest voting in favour electorate in the country. So we voted 74 point something. And when it came time to for our elected representative to represent us in the chamber, he decided to go and leave the chamber. And for me, he put his personal views, you know, up against the 74,000 people who had voted in favour mm. and he decided to leave. And for me, that just pushed me over the edge. I didn't really like a lot of things that Tony had done before and his stance on a lot of things, but that just really showed that he didn't really care about what the electorate thought. And I was like, okay, that's it. I'm, I'm going to try and do something about this. And what sort of moment is it though? Like is it a real wake up in the middle of the night I've had enough kind of moment? Because I feel like we all get those moments but we don't act on them. Uh, I think for me it was a gradual process and this one it was, you know, it's like a a seesaw or a a fulcrum thing and you basically it only takes one more penny to push the whole thing (laughs) over and and that was that was like a bag a big 10 kilo bag got dropped on me that day and sort of flung me into the air you know looking back now it's the best thing that's ever happened and probably I watched um the strong female lead the other night and I wish I had done it in 2013 instead of 2017. Really, watching there the Julia Gillard story and, yeah. and what happened there, right? If you think of Australian history and some of the negative stuff that's happened, and Tony, Tony Abbott's responsible for a lot of that stuff. So what's your first move? You've made a decision. Yeah, the first move was I emailed six people in the street and said, what are we going to do about Tony Abbott? And, uh, and someone sent that to me the day after we zallied one and said, I just want you to remember you sent this email to us. And it was a great thing because it was basically I just it sent those people in and from there I just went about basically building a tribe. But how did you know those six would not arc up? Because it's the thing about Australia, Mark, is that politics is a difficult thing to talk about and it's like you have to give permission to people to say, I don't like this person and what they're doing. Uh, you know, I think in my life, I think if you come at things with a good intention not much ever goes wrong. And I think you can have those hard conversations with friends, you can have those hard conversations at work, you can do lots of things, but it's a lot of it is about how you frame stuff and where you're coming from in the beginning. And I wasn't trying to be nasty to Tony. I was just thinking there's there's got to be better, a better person to represent us on the federal stage because this guy is not doing it. Six people you said you wrote to? Yeah. What happens after that? What's next? They say, hmm, that's a good idea. All right. Oh, no, so everyone sort of, sort of agreed with me. There was, you know, there was an issue with the person. And then from there I was like, okay, well, what tools do I have? And I, and I run a business and I, I'm, I quite like marketing and I love sales development and product development and stuff. So 
from there I went, okay, if I'm going to build a movement, or I'm going to build, I'm going to do a bit of a litmus test here. So I decided to start a, like a closed Facebook group. And from there I invited, I think probably 30, 40 people. And then, you know, they invited some people. And, and after about four months, I had a look and there was 1,900 people in there. Wow. And I was like, that's it. See, all these people are in Ringer. That's about nearly 2% of the population of Ringer have already joined this Let's Not Re-elect Tony Abbott group. Mm. And so from there, it was interesting because I, I could see lots of people that they, cause you can sort of tell who's friends with friends and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, I could see that a lot of people were, they sort of were once removed from other people. So I thought, oh, it might be really good. And today, actually, on Facebook, it uh, reminded me that today was the first day that I started to design and sell Vote Tony Out shirts. Wow, what a wonderful anniversary. Yeah, three three <laughs> years ago. So that was pretty cool. But the, I, the only reason that I did the T-shirts was because I wanted these people to see who each other was. Yeah. And so people started to wear the T-shirts and the beautiful old lady down the street, she decided she would buy one and she said, Look, Mark, I'm going to wear this but I'm prepared to be hit with a cricket bat. And I was like, well, I don't think you're going to get hit with a cricket bat. Let me know when you go for your first walk and I'll give you a call afterwards. So anyway, two days later she rang and said, hey, oh, Mark, I just have been out for my first walk and I've been asked a quest- one question so many times. And I was like, oh, my God, what was it? And she goes, where did you get that shirt? I want one. Unreal. But you see how her first reaction is I expect to get backlash from this and I think that's another reason people are sometimes frightened of what that of doing that because that's a pretty bold thing to wear I've got my vote Angus out t-shirt I can't wear it anywhere because I'm allowed to go anywhere but even that you know you're saying something and you're inviting people to come up and go what do you mean what do you mean yeah and you got to be ready you know so the first t-shirt was it said time's up and then it had a massive Tony on it so if you looked at it (laughs) and so people were saying no no we've got to like have a go at him and I was like no no I want when you're wearing this T-shirt, I want people to start a conversation. Mm. And it was just beautiful because people did, they did start a conversation and by the end of it you, you would say to people, well, what do you like about Tony? And by the end of that conversation, everyone, well, sort of nothing really, you know. He's been around for 24 years and he's done nothing. There was a great bit though I did hear you talk about you would go up to people and say, what do you like about Tony? And they would say, oh, well, he volunteers, he's a firefighter. Yeah, Volunteers, a volunteer firefighter, and he he's a, does some um, surf lifesaving volunteering. And, you know, that's great, but we don't pay all those volunteers $524,000 a year or whatever it was to to um, to do that volunteering. And not many of those people take a film crew down there when they do it. So you're selling T-shirts. That's going well. There's obviously a crowd of people who are now, well, you've given them permission to kind of come together and this was before COVID, obviously. Uh, this was a time when you could still get together. Did you? Did you get together? Uh, we got together. The first part about the T-shirts was that I think the first 16 or 1,700 of them, I actually delivered myself <laughs> to everyone's house and introduced myself and gave them a T-shirt. And I remember one lady saying at the end, she said, I knew we would win because on the sec- on the, I bought a T-shirt and within an hour you dropped that T-shirt off and introduced yourself. Mm. And what does she mean by that, that you actually named who you were, that you were a real person? Well, I, I think I was just personifying the movement and she felt comfortable that we weren't a whole lot of sort of, you know, left-wing nutjobs. So we are just normal people who just wanted to. And the, I remember, I do remember the conversation I had with her and it was just a really nice conversation. And I did that so many times 
because it, I just wanted to sort of give people confidence that what they were sort of joining up to was a really good thing. And were you enjoying doing that every day? Because, again, that, is, that becomes a full-time job after a while. Uh, yeah, it was, it, was, it was interesting. As we'd get different bits of media, I remember uh, some days we just, we, we, I think the, in the first part when Lane Benchley and we started the Instagram page and Lane came on and said her piece about what she thought true representation was and why Tony had to go. And then um, Malcolm Turnbull liked that post. That, was, that just sent us into ah. the stratosphere. Mm. And um, I think I sold eight or 900 T-shirts within a couple of days of that. So driving them all around and seeing all those people, it was, you know, it's invigorating. And, you know, I was working a full-time job. I had a company. I had a lot of, lots of stuff. I still have the company. But I just sort of was dedicating eight to ten hours a day to this because it just had so much momentum. And I couldn't really bear to think that Tony Abbott would get in at the next election. So people are starting to look at you as some kind of leader, are they? Are they thinking you're going to be running or? No, no, I made that very clear right from the start that I wasn't. My, my I guess, thing is I'm, not, I'm an organiser. I, I, I guess I, in some facets, facets I, I, I am a leader, but I, I'm pretty good at making shit happen. And I'm re- and on the business side of that, and like you were saying before, I, Everything I do, I sort of try to do it to the best ability I can because I think you only have one, I guess, chance to really impress people and after that you really have to persuade them in a way. And I I didn't really want to have to persuade anyone. I just wanted to impress them with diligence and conviction and thoughtfulness and empathy and the ability to have a conversation with people and I think that really helps. Absolutely, absolutely. So then what was the next step after that? You've got this huge Facebook following. So, yeah, then we started. Then I, I really like, I don't know if you've seen it, but the uh, uh, Humans of New York. Do you oh, yeah, it? love Humans of New York. Yeah, yeah. so I love So it's an Instagram post for people who don't know where a photographer has taken photos of, of different people one at a time and an interesting photo and uh, the story, they tell them, he told that each person tells them uh, their story and they're very moving sometimes, very light, very dark sometimes, it depends, but mm. that idea of getting to know people in your town. Yeah, and it's the personification of the, of New York, I guess, and and the colourful nature that makes it and that uh, the people are the tapestry of New York. So for me, what I wanted to do was to personify politics and make it okay for people to talk about politics and so we kicked off with Lane who's a friend from surfing and I from there I just went and just got neighborhood people and people that other people would recognize because Mm. the 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 big theme is people like us do things like this you know and I think it's if you look at some of the sort of psychology that I I was using was was all about that it's sort of like people like like us do things like this which makes it normal Mm. and like you were saying before some of those conversations aren't normal, but if you do personify it and you put a face to it and that face is a friendly face that you recognise, yeah. then people are willing to have that conversation and they are willing to sort of, I guess, have thoughtful conversations. And part of the thing that I was doing a lot of was actually teaching people about active listening. Wow, tell me about that. I think a lot of people have, can have a conversation, but as I'm talking to you, all you're doing 
is queuing up in your mind the next sentence you're going to say. <laughs> and so you, I could say, hey, in the middle of my thing, there's a red zebra over there. Have you ever seen one of those? And you'll go, the Sydney Harbour Bridge was built mm-hmm. in 1942 because that was your – that might not be exactly right, but um, because that's, that's how people have conversations, statement, 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 statement. But if you actually start doing active listening and you really listen to the person and part of that is – Talk, saying back to them what they've said to you so you show them that you've comprehended or listened to what they've said, you all of a sudden start to get a really deeper level. And so when you ask people what, what do you like about Tony, it, it sort of dissolves within minutes because what they're saying to you are things like, well, he's a volunteer, he does that firefighting, it's amazing. You know, all that stuff, it sort of goes, well, hang on, what about the parliamentary side of that? What about the... You know, what we're paying him five hundred something thousand dollars a year to represent us and you know do his job. Do you think you're getting good value for money there? But see, uh, this is kind of what I sort of want to explore: is that we understand a volunteer, we understand firefighting. As soon as you say, "What are you doing in Canberra?" Again, it's about how we are really as voters often disconnected from the understanding that whatever happens in that house in Canberra, people there are making rules and laws about our lives all the time and hmm. we sort of we sort of forget that part. We don't and the thing is we shouldn't have to keep being reminded by whatever press they're doing. That's something we should innately know. That's something that should either be taught at school or if you're lucky enough to have gone to uni, you might do something that's a bit political at university. But really, you know, exactly, you're saying, but what about what he's doing there? And I always feel like you're having to show, like make people look towards that and go, there's this part as well, what they're doing in Canberra. Yeah, that's. it's interesting you say that because when... There was a meeting, a community meeting here, and we got to ask Tony some questions. And, you know, I asked him a question about, I guess it was the same-sex marriage plebiscite where he he went against the public vote, like the what we voted. And he said his response was that when you're elected an official, like you're a representative, you can go two ways. One, you can be, you can con- continually consult your electorate or the other way you can do is you basically ab- they you think that they abdicate responsibility to you and you take that on and so that's a little bit like I'm an emperor wow. you're electing you're electing me to be an emperor and he said and I chose I I go down the second road there <gasps> he actually said that in front of a group of people 300 people sweet jesus and wow. that's and so I think that you I think in the liberal party today there is a lot of people like that you start to give people in in Warringah permission to join a you know to be vocal and to say yeah. maybe you're right. Do did you go on? Did you do a thing called democracy walks? We went on walks on Manly Beach. Yeah, yeah. So part of it was <laughs> well, it wasn't me. So there's a, there was a lot of people in Warringah, and you know by the time we were really get going, I I'd sold about 6,000 shirts by the time into Ringer and a couple of thousand outside of Ringer, people who just wanted to be part of it. And so there was a lot of people who wanted to do stuff. And so a couple of ladies in Balmoral, actually, and so they started wearing their Vote Tony Out shirts in groups of people. And I had stickers and I had little bags at a bag. I was buying hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of shirts and I thought shopping bags would be really good. So then this guy had couple of thousand sort of library size bags and um he gave them to me you know because I'd bought so many shirts and other things and so 
everyone was walk, doing work along saying, hey, do you want a bag? Do you want a sticker? And, uh, and so they did that and they would just chat to people along mm. Balmoral Beach, along Manly Beach. And it was every weekend, every mm. Sunday for a year. Wow. And in the end, there's just like packs of people and then they'd all come back to a cafe and have a cup of coffee. And the most beautiful thing about that was those people were from all walks of life. They'd voted for all sorts of different parties, but they were all just had a common bond. And I think in the end, they were all just frustrated with how politics was working. And I can sort of see that now around Australia. It's, mm. you know, Tony Abbott was a bit of a, he's a bit of a, I guess, very divisive person. And a lot of these other electorates, people are saying, well, you know, Jason Flinsky, people don't even know who he is, but mm. it doesn't matter. It's it's exactly the same. They, they Tony was in some ways more honest than others because he was saying, he would say, I'm not voting for that, so he wouldn't vote for it. Where yeah. other people say, oh, I'm really into climate change, but then vote like, you know, Craig Kelly or George Christensen. When do you decide you have enough people that you can actually start looking for a candidate? Did you have a number that you were looking for or was it a period of time? No. My big thing, whilst I was doing this, there was another group of people who were basically building the candidate machine. So that there was a, a company formed called Ringer Independent um, and that had some directors that was getting funding. So they're re- that's ready to go. And that's exactly what's happening in McKellar. That's what's happening in North Sydney and around the, around the country now that would have already happened in um, Hume where you are. And so my thing was just to build the movement and from there I thought someone will come out where the Ringer Independent sort of commercial part, they were actually out talking to people. So what happened on our side was on the 23rd of December in 2018, Zali just randomly bought four or six shirts for her family for Christmas and from there, I thought, oh, this is pretty good. She's got an OAM. I, I sort of knew who she was. She was in my growing up era of, you know, when she won her Olympic medals. I was probably not too, I'm probably nine years older than her. But I thought, I'm going to go up and drop these up for sure. And I think I was mailing her out by then, but I'm going to drop them up and I'll have a chat to her and see if she wants to do the Australia Day post because that's when you have the, you know, the Australia Day honours. Anyway, I had a chat to her and said, and she said, uh, let me think about it. That might be Good, so anyway. And this was just a commitment to doing an Instagram post, that's all that was. Yeah, so that's the 23rd of December and I sort of sent her a couple of messages um, around that time say, hey, are you going to do this? I really want to queue this up. So said, yeah, 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 I'm getting my words together. And then over Christmas she started to talk to her family about well, maybe, you know, what, who's the candidate, what are they doing? And we had a, a, another candidate in mind who was sort of ready to go but, Everyone was still looking, you know, and and so Zali on and just pure coincidentally, I just happened to have be at her dad's place on New Year's Eve that year, and oh. I was sitting sitting next to him, her and Tim, having dinner, and they were just asking me questions about you know how many people were involved and how it all worked, and <laughs> and and then on the fourth of January, and we had a nice night, and I sort of just left it there, and then on the fourth of January, her running partner. A friend of mine, Susan, rang and said, hey, Zali's really keen on talking to you about, you know, being the candidate, you know. Wow. And I was like, oh, that's really interesting. I'll, I'll get a few people to, together, you know, put it together and have a chat. So mm. she pretty much got scrutinised by 13 or 14 people. And then um, it was, that was on the 4th of January, right? So then 
everyone has, we have another meeting, everyone talks for over the next couple of days, we have another couple of meetings, and then we just had this meeting out in my showroom, which I think the photo was in the Australian or somewhere years ago, but it was basically the go, no, go meeting, and everyone, we all voted and said, okay, yep, she's our, she's our wow. girl, and from there, that was on about the 6th or 8th of January, and then on the 27th of January, we launched her campaign, and because of all the T-shirts I'd sold, I had everyone's name and address, and I just basically went, okay, this suburb, this suburb, it's anyone who could walk to this park, I'm going to send them a text message that morning and say, hey, Vote Tony's out is endorsing Zali Stegel. We want you to come to the the launch of Zali's campaign. And I sent that at 7.30 in the morning, and this gig was starting at 10.30. All the media was invited. And so of the 600 people that... I sent the text message to about 380 turned up. Wow. And why did you give such a short amount of time? I think just because you don't really trust the Liberal Party. When you, once you've done some campaigning, <laughs> they're seriously dirty, dirty people. Right. And, and, and so we, we just didn't want bad things to happen. And so we sort of had this plan and so mm. I'd sort of executed that. But, you know, when the media rocked up and all of a sudden there's 380 or nearly 400 people there, they were like, what the is going on here? Like these people. Traditional independent comes along and they put a placard up and say, vote for me. But in this situation, the community is waiting for Zali. They're already there. They already know what's going on. And the media were just buzzing, like going, oh, my God, we just thought this was a, you know, a little lady in a park bringing a soapbox down to stand onto, not some sort of mega event. And then when it unfolded what had happened, because, you know, Gee, there's been some articles this week like in safe coalition seats across the country, changes in the air as dissatisfaction with the status quo intensifies. And and it's great. They're saying spurred on by the success of small number of federal independents, a grassroots community movement called Voices Of is growing. This, um, you know, when this, this sort of model now is actually going around many electorates of Australia and you're involved. Yeah, so I think one of the big things was that we learned as the group, the Coalition of the Willing, someone <laughs> someone called us. So, well, this is what happened in this is if you go back a year before now, what happened was there was all these different groups who'd done different bits and pieces. Some of them big, some of them small. There was a think twice ringer guy who was sticking the posters up with awkward photos of Tony, but quotes of what Tony had done, and um, there was another group called C19 Ringer, who would go out in the dinosaur suits. And and then there was the um, North Shore Environmental Stewards. But some one of the ladies, Julia, Julie, had basically got everyone together and we all sat in a room. There was 24 people. And she just basically, they just brought us together and said, hey, this is what's going on. And from there, I think just that coalition of the willing was a great thing because it we had a lot of unity from there and we had probably four or five meetings over the next couple of years. But because I'd sort of had a lot of momentum um, as far as getting people into it, that was, I'd sort of, I was sort of spearheading the, I guess, the community involvement of it, which was, was just, I don't know, for me it was exhilarating and fun and I didn't for a minute doubt that we wouldn't prevail, you know. When uh, can you tell me a bit about the night Zali won? Well, it's more the day. So the day in in the election, you sort of know quite early in that day how it's going to go. And I sort of was talking to Rob 
Purves, who was Charlie's sort of chairman of the campaign. And I sort of hung out with him most of the day. And we went to, I went to a few different different booths and just saw people. And, then we, you know, Zali's campaign had 1,300 volunteers. That's just so, that's a lot of people. Is it? Yeah. And, and Tony, Tony's campaign and the people on the booth, we were talking to them, they were university students from Double Bay who were getting credits at their uni- political science course. That's the only reason they were there. <laughs> so they, like, went, they didn't want to be there. Well, they didn't. That just shows you the Liberal yeah. Party doesn't have many people. Yeah. And so, and then his um, his sister, Christine Foster, was on the booth down in Manly. And we sort of overheard her on the phone. And she was on the phone saying, this is at 10.30, it's not looking good. I just want to say, it's not looking good. It's, and we don't know who she's talking to, probably Tina McQueen, the crazy lady. But um, at 10.30 in the morning, you just knew that people were doing the right thing. And the other thing was, for me personally, I decided that through the whole vote turnout thing, I didn't want to use any, you know, plastic. So I'd, I'd been mailing all these T-shirts out in this cardboard uh, packaging and then driving around in my electric car. And then on the day, you just see so much waste goes on a, on an election. Yes. There's so much stuff gets chucked in. So I decided to do an electric-only, fully digital um, how to vote card, and so people were, and I'd it got downloaded like thirty nine thousand times, like it was just amazing. But people were saying at the booth they weren't taking any of the brochures, and they were freaking out, going, "What's going on?" And then on the way out, they just show them the little how to vote. They use Tony their phone out. and just flash their QR little code. Yeah, or their little how to vote Tony, how, how to, to vote, vote Tony, Tony out card, and it was just. That was me when people were telling me that story over and over again that day. I was like, "Yep, this is going to be cool." So it was. Um, so the night of the election, I'd sort of predicted back in the first meeting when uh, of the coalition of the willing. I did this little guided meditation with everyone about how the next twenty-four months or however long would go. Did you? Yes. A and guided meditation. I mean, you don't often hear that, that someone's going to take someone through a guided meditation about the future. We're missing that. I'd like to see a lot more of that. And, and it was really interesting because a lot of things I'd sort of, I took everyone forward to the night of the election and to 7.30 in the night wow. and I wanted them to connect to how they would feel at that point in time when our candidate had won and Anthony Green had called the election in our favour. And, you know... Take bear in mind that an hour and a half before this, I had not met any of those people. So I've got them all in a room. And I'm sitting, they're all sitting there with their eyes closed. Two people are crying. Oh. Everyone else has got a smile on their face. One guy's pumping in, his, in their hands in the air. So they'd all connected to that moment. And then I just brought them back and back and back and back and back to now through hard conversations with getting friends on board, you know, doing all this hard work right to back to that room then. Anyway, so on the night, I was seven minutes out. Oh, I love it. You and knew. I, and I think Anthony Green knew, so he just delayed it a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. So, you know, a lot of people uh, often use the Jacinda Ardern line, I wish we had a Jacinda, and I feel like we we do in Zali, not that she necessarily will have to become Prime Minister one day, but there are many women and men, but there are many people out there already there that have that special quality that I think people see in Jacinda, which is, as you say, you know, it's empathy, it's listening, mm. active listening, 
feeding that back, being a human being in the role and asking the people in her community uh, what that what they need. They're Zali that's, that's come through and done that and you're still helping different electorates with a model to try and get that happening, that idea of building a base first and then bringing a candidate in. So does that mean that parties are over? Is, is, is a party something that are from our parents' generation where we understood, you know, depending on what, you know, camp you voted for, there was a history to it or it might be involved with a social movement or whatever. Are we going to see more and more independence coming through? Uh, I would like to think so. I Once you've experienced what we're experiencing in Moringa, and I guess the people in Indi would be the same, and... You know, if you look at Andrew Wilkie, he's been elected in multiple times. You just have, it's a much better feeling Mm -hmm. and you just know that there's a better way. And then you look at some of the things that have gone on this week. So Christian Porter's thing where he's got a million dollars, someone's given him a million dollars to pay his legal fees and he doesn't know, he apparently doesn't know who that is. And he's a lawyer and he was the Attorney General of this country. Give me a break. Like, for me, if that doesn't tell you that party politics is horrible or Mm. one thing, say, Scott Morrison has protected Craig Kelly and pre-selected him, which has blown up up in his face, but that guy should not even be in Parliament. Mm. So there's just things like that where there's about 10,000 things where party politics is broken. Will it go away? It may, but it'll take a long time. But I think it can go away pretty quickly if we get, and I think we will at the next election, get a minority government. So then there might be, say, I'd love there to be 10 independents. Do you want to call that now? Do you want to call that now, Mark? Mark, Okay, everybody, Mark's just called it. It's ten. He's saying ten, and we'll, we'll we'll see what Anthony says on the day. Okay, Mate, between, <laughs> let's go between eight and ten. But eight and ten would be awesome, because what has to happen then is that every piece of legislation has some dialogue about it, and there isn't people running roughshod and pushing things through. And what we learned from Zali, you know, Zali's experience in in Parliament is that when the parties vote on legislation, they walk into the parliament, the people walk in when the bells ring and there's a division and everyone walks in, the party people get pages. And when they have to vote, the pages tell that person how to vote. That person has not read the legislation. The Liberal Party has and the Labor Party have people who basically read the legislation and then they'll, they'll tell people how to vote or what the amendments will be and then they sort of push that through. But I can guarantee you that some of the people in this area, Trent Zimmerman or Jason Falinski or whatever, Dave Sharma, they have not read every piece of legislation they voted on. They are just going on blind faith about what that pager says. A really interesting, Zali was saying, when Craig Kelly was moved from the Liberals to the crossbench, became decided he was an independent, on the first day he was there and he's saying to Zali and Helen Haynes, hey, so um, who tells us what to do? Wow. And they were like, what do you mean? What do you mean? Who tells us what to do? He goes, uh, normally I just get a, a page, piece of stuff and it tells me what to do, oh what, I'm, what we're talking God. about today and whatever. And she goes. And so, but he's been, he was the candidate Scott Morrison wanted to put in, you know. But that's happening for every Liberal Party representative and every Labor Party representative. We've got a choice, basically. People do have a choice. How is COVID going to impact 
this next election. You know, we, we've, I'm doing these podcasts once a month for the next six months until the election just as a way of, for me personally too, to find out more from people who know more than me about um, how they go about finding out what's happening in this kind of very complicated system. You were working in that Zali example when we could be out and talk and go to cafes and walk on the beach and deliver T-shirts. How do you think being locked down like this, who knows, it's going it, to, we know that at the moment in New South Wales and Victoria we're locked down. How will that play into how we communicate through this? I think we're all pretty used to doing what we're doing now. Um, and, and, you know, I've had some, I decided a couple of months ago, like a month ago, just to start ringing people that I hadn't seen for a while and just had, I've had some beautiful conversations that I wouldn't have had before and just, doing little random acts of kindness. And I think the, the theory that I have this about this community politics, it's peer-to-peer. You should be able to win an election without spending a dollar. And, and so every electorate in Australia is about 100,000 people, give or take a couple of thousand. And in that room in, back in um, 2017 or 18 with the Coalition of the Willing, I sort of said to those people, look, if you think of the good, that degrees of separation theory, and in Ringa there's 100,000 people, in this room we can be no more than four degrees of separation from everyone. And so the peer-to-peer communication, which can happen in a COVID environment, you just got to pick up the phone or put on your social media or send a text message or send an email out to all the people who are in the electorate just to say, hey, this is what I'm thinking. Do you want to have a conversation about it? Or just having a conversation about it, putting it out there or joining your local, you know, McKellar Rising group in McKellar or North Sydney Independent in Sydney, whatever it is. And then once you're in there, help them join the tribe. Are we having a moment now? Is there something kind of in the air in that, you know, there's 30 voices of groups and electorates across the country and even if they don't make it, even if that candidate doesn't make it and get that vote, at least it's activated the community in a different way. Is there a moment happening? Um, I, I would like to think so. It's it's interesting to think of, I don't know, things like big, big things like Nelson Mandela where he was, you know, chipped away for how many decades and finally got there. And I think some of this stuff, you would hope that it doesn't take 50 years for democracy to really grow up. But you just have to listen to question time in Parliament and think there's got to be a better way than this. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's sort of, it's that question time and just how they go about stuff is just a complete disgrace in my mind. But also we don't have the time now. I think what really also sort of propelled me was that, that last IPCC report that was sort of ignored I'm so terrified about climate change in the future and I feel like we have to start making decisions quickly. We need to start all agreeing that climate change is real and we have to start looking at Mm. how economically, you know, we're going to deal with that so that people aren't freaking out and thinking that it is some weird kind of, you know, conspiracy or that it's going to have to take, oh, well, we'll wait till 2050. I mean, that's just, we can't. No, I, you know, I watched that strong female lead the other night and I was thinking yesterday, I wonder if you could do a film like a documentary like that about climate change, but mm. by the time you did it, by the time you started the film, mm. the apocalypse has started and it's like, well, back in 2010, mm. you know, back in 2020, it's all too late. You know, it's, 
you've either got to, and really, if you think, even if you don't believe in climate change, you've got to believe in less pollution and, you know, just a cleaner planet. But you're a surfer and you've, your business is surfing. What's your business? Uh, surfboards. So you're someone who's in the water, you're someone who breathes the air, you're someone who sees the dawn, yeah. you're someone who feels the sand between his toes, you're someone who is in it and I'm not surprised that you're someone who yeah. appreciates that and, and connects with it because so many of us are disconnected from the, the air that we breathe thinking it's going to magically be there always and, and then... Uh, just before COVID, you know, when we had those fires and you were walking through places like Coogee Beach and the air was thick and you could barely see and I kept mm. looking around thinking, why isn't everybody running around panicking and thinking this is the end of the world? And everybody was going around their business. Yeah, I think if you went to the south coast, they were, that was that was a reality. That was, the yeah. world was ending. yeah. But they were really, they, we were just getting the smoke, the, the smoke was just coming to Coogee. But even that, I thought, isn't this terrifying enough yeah. for you? You couldn't breathe it in. It was awful. And of course, yeah. in terms of where it was actually happening, they knew what was going on. But I was just amazed that people weren't connecting the two and going, this isn't right. I think it's, it's, it's the same with politics. It's People just have this apathy. Where does it come from, though, Mark, Where, as Australians? Uh, no, well, I think it comes from I can't really, that's the system, I can't change that. And I, and I think there's a growing cohort of people in Baringa and around, and what, this is what you're seeing with all those different things, um, that, can, you know, well, no, that's actually not right. You can change that. You can have a voice. You, you can be listened to and you can make a difference and, you know, I think it's the same. Any Anyone can do the same that I, I did. You just have to say, well, I'm just going to start talking to people about it. And if and really, if there was no traction, you know, if I had 50 conversations, there was no traction, I probably wouldn't have voted for Tony, but I would have just probably stopped talking about it. But I, I wasn't. And I think you've got to start. It's like, what's that saying? A problem uh, a problem, something. Shared yeah. is a problem halved. A problem halved and solved? Well, yeah. something. There's a saying about that problem thing. But, yeah, but I know what you um, mean. I think that's yeah. it. And you got if you live outside your head, all of a sudden you find there's a lot of people who think like you do. Yeah. And you've just got, and you, you will never know if you don't start having those conversations. Thank you, Mark. And if you're wondering, it's a problem shared is a problem halved. It's not necessarily solved. It's just halved. But it's true. It's what Mark says at the end there. If you always live inside your head and you don't share your thoughts, then um, you can't have those conversations. And I talked to my next guest a little bit about this too, why sometimes in Australia we won't talk about politics or what's happening around us. It's not necessarily the word politics. It shouldn't be that that scares you. It's civics. It's actually how we run things and how we run things, especially now in terms of climate climate and where we're going to go next in the future um, is really, really important. So, yeah, a problem shared is a problem halved, everyone. <laughs> Use it in a sentence tomorrow. <laughs> what up, what up? Jay-Z asks who cares. It's your boy, Jay-Z. Make some noise. Not bad, Jay-Z. Julia Zemiro. This is Julia Zemiro asks who cares.
My next guest is Sally Rugg. She's one of Australia's most influential campaigners for social change. Very inspiring woman. I loved talking with her. She's an activist, a writer, a digital campaigner. She's just stepped down as executive director of change.org, which is a platform you may have used or your friends have used to make some changes in your own life. It's such a fantastic organisation. We talk a little bit about her book. She wrote this great book called How Powerful We Are and it really takes you behind the scenes of one of the most significant social changes in a generation, which was the marriage equality campaign. But we also talk about why activism sometimes has to come from a personal place and how keeping momentum up uh, is quite uh, tricky sometimes. We start talking about the women's marches that happened earlier this year. So this one, we were in Canberra and I emceed that particular event and We talk about um, the electricity that was in the air. I was at that Canberra rally and I watched UMC it and I watched all the incredible speakers coming up and, you know, doing their thing. And I completely know what you mean when you say that it was like there was electricity in the air and like it was something different. And like I have been to a lot of rallies and I have organised a lot of rallies. A lot of my friends like to call me Rally Rug. Um, so like I'm into a rally. I love the feeling of like getting together with the core enthusiasts or the, the core supporters of a campaign and, um, you know, demonstrating passion or or anger or hope, um, all, all together. Like I really love it, but there was something about that day that I was, was quite extraordinary and, Part of it was because there were a lot of new people who perhaps had never been to a march or a protest before, but I also think it was because those people were joined by activists or, you know, women who might not even consider themselves activists but had been going to marches and rallies for 50 years. You know, there was a a massive generational Mm. spread across that event and to me, it really felt like that moment was, you know, was on the backs of so many moments and movements for gender equality and feminism that had come before. And instead of being sort of like an, another chapter, it was kind of this this beautiful culmination in, in on the lawns of Parliament on that day. So I wonder if um, any of the people listening were either at that event or were at a similar event that day because, yeah, God, it was magical. It's so interesting that you say because you've had so much experience that you felt something different on that day because I have not been, I had not been to a march in a while and I had not been to one where, I don't know, it had happened all so quickly and so, yeah, so for you to have noticed something, that's that's really interesting that there was something slightly different about it. There definitely was and I think one of the things as well that I witnessed from being right up the front near um, the stage and the media and the politicians who'd come out of Parliament House and the speakers and, you know, it was right up in the, the hubbub of it all. Like in my book I write about this um, at length but so rallies or protests, like they're not really a persuasion tactic. Like if you get a few more supporters of your cause like via a rally, that's great. But what rallies are meant to do is mobilise people who are already very passionate about your cause 
to demonstrate that passion for the purpose of getting attention, which is usually political attention, unless your decision maker is like a corporation or, you know, some other governing body. And that usually happens via the media. So, you know, with these sort of protests and rallies, it can quite often be a sort of, um, you know, this sort of like tacit partnership with with media, like trying to get on the nightly news, trying to um, get the right photo that you'll hope will be on the front page of the paper and all the rest of it. But at this particular protest on the lawns of Parliament, what I noticed was like everybody there, the organisers, the attendants, the speakers were like, oi, media, get out the way. Like there was this moment where all the videographers and camera people were like crowding around the speakers and, Julia, I remember you being like, move out the way, people can't see. <laughs> like because it wasn't, <laughs> yeah. it wasn't about, it was such a like raw, um, authentic gathering of rage and hope that it wasn't, it, it, to me, it didn't feel like a show for the media. It was like we had come straight to Parliament and a bunch of politicians, well, heaps and heaps of members of Parliament left the building and came and stood with us and they didn't make speeches, you know, like they weren't they weren't there to, um, you know, we weren't there to shout at them. They were sort of jo- joining us. Yeah, I think it was just a, a beautiful display of power. Mm. I worked on the same-sex marriage campaign or marriage equality campaign for about five years, which is actually not very long in terms of this campaign. Like that campaign took like three decades and you could argue that it, you know, has stretched back for forever, right, like since the beginning of Mm. advocating for equal rights for LGBTIQ people. But so five years was a big part of my life to date, but, you know, it's not a big part of the life of the campaign. <laughs> and during that time, like, I had the incredible privilege of witnessing, uh, you know, arguably one of the power, most powerful social change movements of the decade, if not a generation, in marriage equality in Australia. And I use the word social change movement because it it really did require millions and millions and millions of people like campaigning for it like it it, it required mass a mass campaign it wasn't a sort of like eventual legislative change so i you know i got to witness the glory and the the blood sweat and tears and the complexity and the um you know just like the best part of who who we all are and what we can do when we work together and then and then it was sort of like the Prime Minister at the time, Malcolm Turnbull, and his Liberal government, you know, it came time to pass the law. We did that awful postal survey and they're like, oh, yes, now we can do the law. And it's like the postal survey had nothing to do with <laughs> achieving marriage equality. Mm. But And it was in these final weeks. So I was in Parliament. The bill for marriage equality had just passed the Senate. It was going to be a week before um, the House of Representatives, the lower house, sat and would pass the law. Like we knew it was going to happen. It was just like passing laws has to take time, I guess. And so these final moments of the campaign, when we know we've won but we're just waiting for it to go through, and I watched as 
Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull and his Liberal Party colleagues tell the nation again and again that the Liberal Party achieved marriage equality and that Malcolm Turnbull achieved marriage equality and that the postal survey achieved marriage equality. And this made me feel crazy because <laughs> because it wasn't true. And no, it was not was just, true. It was straight up not true, like extremely on the public record that that wasn't what had happened. But I also watched this narrative begin to take hold in the, you know, the sort of like chattering class, I suppose. So sort of like, you know, in the columns and and on the talk, you know, the late night news talk shows and um, sort of repeated on radio and um, all this sort of stuff. And I just felt like, I mean, I know the term gaslighting is used very liberally nowadays, but I really felt like yeah, we had gone through this extraordinary decades-long campaign and this brutal experience of being done, like, of queer people being denied equality for so long and then having our rights subjected to a popular opinion poll, to then have it, to have the Liberal Party and the government, like, pave over all of our work so that Malcolm Turnbull could run a victory lap on top of it, it just made, yeah, it made me, yeah, want to, like, catapult myself off the face of the earth. So um, so it was like <laughs> that was my motivation for writing it. It wasn't like, yeah. oh, what a beautiful thing we have to share. I was like, I must set the record straight because, I, you know, I'm really uh, interested in replicating what we did as a country for same-sex marriage for a whole bunch of other issues, right, and we can't right. mobilise in our masses effectively um, again and again and again and improve on our work um, and maintain our, like, connections and our organisation and all the rest of it if all of that work is erased um, and that we never, we never learn about the fraught decisions and the mistakes and the things that worked and all the rest of it. So that's why I wrote the book because I wanted to, I wanted to tell everybody how we did it. So, you know, in the hope that somebody might read it or many people would read it and then learn from it and then do it again. (laughs) It does two things so well, though. On the one hand, you do tell the story of this particular issue, which was marriage equality, and you uh, take into account the years of um, activism before you. And we get a kind of a history lesson about that. And that's always so great because at the we know a lot of us lived just through the actual vote and the plebiscite, so we remember it. And so to read what was happening within it is very uh, informative and exciting. But on the other hand, it is a, a very clear description of the things you have to do, the blocks you have to build, the people you get involved, the, the conversations that you have to get people active and activated. Now, in the book you say, Activism is about changing things that those in power don't want changed. Activism doesn't have to be adversarial, but it does need to make power bend and relent. It does need to displace privilege, even if that privilege is just the unchallenged ability to make decisions for other people. And I feel like we're having another moment now uh, leading up to this election where 
you know, whether you want to say it started with this, this uh, with certainly with climate marches and rallies happening with the Women's March and now even uh, the, the 30 or so voices of groups that are coming up around Australia where people are saying, I'm not happy with this person that supposedly represents me, I want to do something to change it. It seems like um, maybe activism is is coming back. People are starting to see that it's not a dirty word. You know, people hear the word politics or the word feminism or the word activism and they just switch off. And I, I'm really hoping that in the next six months we can try and get people kind of excited about what it means to maybe be more involved. That's that's the activism. That's the active citizenship of it. Yeah, I, I think you're exactly right. I, I like... And again, maybe it's because I am a relentless optimist. Because you got to be right. Like if you, I agree. If you be- believe that the world can be better, um, and it should be better, and like you want to make it better with all your friends, then you have to be an optimist. Yeah. I mean, I have no evidence of this other than my thoughts. But what I think it is in Australia, and you know, this could be applied elsewhere in the world, but. I think the experience of forcing the country to do this ridiculous postal survey, which was obviously dressed up as a plebiscite, a national vote that would influence legislation, I think that was a horrific and, uh, like, unacceptable, in my view, experience for LGBTIQ people in Australia and everybody who loves them. So, like, we should never, ever do this again. The Mm. one silver lining of it all, I think, is that it it did give a a vast amount of the public an experience of what it is to get organised and do something together. Like it was like a real focus of like, well, ask your friends if they've posted their ballot or like post on social media why you're voting yes or, you know, it was like this um, like a gateway drug in change making. (laughs) And so I think it was actually a little bit of an own goal in that sense from the government because the government also like they created the survey to create cover for Prime Minister Turnbull and his faction of the Liberal Party from the sort of more conservative right-wing members of the party. And so for that political cover to be created, the whole experience of casting the vote was meant to be like, oh, this is a real challenge and it's very significant and we won and isn't that amazing? So, and in doing that, I would like to think that it, yeah, it gave a lot of Australians a sort of taste of change-making. And then from there, I think there have been some really huge global activist moments, one from Greta Thunberg and the school strikes for climate, like having a young, the younger generation who I think will save us all and they... They must. But may I say, may I say, I just want all the all the young people to know, and I will be there to help you in whatever way. So if it's making sandwiches, if it's hosting an event, <laughs> if it's faxing something, you know, I, I agree. We can't, I, I just want them to know we don't expect you to do it all. I mean, I will be the handmaiden that you need. You know what I mean? I don't. we've got to also support them and help them get there because we've kind of, we're responsible partly. Yeah, like we and our parents and grandparents have fucked it and they are the, I think they are the doctors of this world. But, like, I completely agree with you, Julia. Like, I think, like, I will follow Jean Hinchcliffe, who is an organiser for the school strike um, for climate. You know, like, I will follow these activists and, and do whatever they tell me to do because they are 
Yeah, they're really leading the way, which incidentally is the title of Jean's book. Um, <laughs> yeah, so but the, the school strike for climate and the the marches led by school kids and supported by, you know, um, extraordinary amounts of um, industry and church groups and, uh, you know, celebrities and all, all these different people. I think that was quite a profound moment of mobilisation mm. and also the Black Lives Matter movement that just, uh, you know, overpowered the world beginning from last year in the wake of the murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor in the US. You know, black activists in the US particularly because this is where those marches and subsequent campaigns came from, but black activists all around the world and particularly here in Australia have been, you know, organising for racial justice and agitating and lobbying and demonstrating and petitioning and doing all of that since, well, here in Australia since colonisation essentially, but that worldwide movement and reckoning for racial justice that was led by black activists around the world, I think was also extraordinary and sort of penetrated every corner, um, every business, every community, every school, um, and, and that was an extraordinarily powerful social movement as well and, and is obviously still continuing. So I, I think you're right that there is a, a greater, well, I would like to think that you're right, that there is a greater sense of hope and power and familiarity with with a shift in power, mm. like what people are capable of when they work together. I think what uh, really struck me reading the book, and it's not, I'm, I'm really not doing this as a, you know, pushing the book, but by all means, everybody, Christmas is upon us, do get it. <laughs> but what a, the thing that it drilled down for me was is that you can't, change a system if you don't know how the system works. And I thought I knew how the system of our parliament worked. And when, you know, you give a very simple kind of school, high school civics lesson, and I mean, when was the last time we really investigated that? Maybe when we were at high school. But again, you remind us of how each party has factions. So even when I think I'm voting for a particular party, well, I'm really not sure who I'm voting for and who is going to push what agenda. And the book was really clear about, along with how to develop a strategy and how to frame a message and how to get your campaign to the media and how to build community power, is if you don't know how the system works and where it tries to lie and cheat you, then you don't quite know what you're trying to kind of dismantle exactly, but what you're trying to kind of break open. And, you know, if you were to stop someone in the street and say, how do our systems work in, in Parliament and in Canberra? I don't, I don't think the percentage would be very high. So it's hard to want to change something if you don't quite know how it works, if you know what I mean. Yeah, absolutely. With same-sex marriage, and to be honest, like almost all of the campaigns that I have worked on and supported are um, structured as such that they are about working within the system, which is why you, like, learn the tools of the system so you can hack it. And I just want to acknowledge the sort of school of thought that sits outside that, you know, being like you, you cannot dismantle the master's house with the master's tools. And so there is, like, this separate school of, work, of thought that's like, 
you know, if you work within the system, you're reinforcing it. That's that's kind of like not the work I do, but that is a school of thought that exists and like has merit, I think. In terms of, you know, everyday people or, you know, ordinary members of our community not fully understanding the systems of power, that's spot on. And I think that was really clear to me uh, in my role as the executive director at Change.org, which I've just wrapped up. Um, that role. But so while I was at change.org, like the the nature of that platform is people come to the platform and start a petition after usually they've suffered like mm. a terrible injustice or like, you know, the, the worst thing in their life has just happened to them. And they have been let down by the the traditional avenues of justice, like whether that is the police or the courts or the um, the brand or the shop or the venue or the um, yeah. the law yeah. or, you know, like whatever it is. And so they sort of like will pursue the normal complaints process or whatever that might be and, and they're let down by the system. And so in, in my work at Change.org, I got the experience of like meeting with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people who, you know, would say like, hey, my pet, both my dogs have just died because they've eaten contaminated pet food. And then I went on Facebook and I found out that hundreds of dogs have died from this same contaminated pet food. And then I did research and found out that the industry is not regulated, but what do I do? Wow. Mm. You know, stories like that. Mm. And so being able to say, right, okay, well, that regulation sits under, you know, this regulatory body and the laws that affect that regulatory body is federal and there's this senator called Rex Patrick who's really into regulation, so let me see if I can get you a meeting with him. And, you know, like, yeah, being able to help people uh, get to know the system and then um, learn how to hack it, as I like to say, or, or work it maybe. There's so much in the book about how you went about what you did. But can you explain just one aspect of it, which was fascinating to me, which was when you were trying to garner support and try and really sort of drill down into who would be voting and in what way, what a number one was and number two and number three and number four and number five. In campaigning generally, you group up who the audience is. And so in campaigning, you sort of rank the audience from people who are like most supportive of your cause, which are the ones. Mm, they're number ones. Soft support is two, neutral or undecided is three, four is like soft oppose, five is hard oppose. By the time I came on board with the campaign for marriage equality at the end of, beginning of 2013, end of 2012, there was already a lot of people in ones, a lot of people in two. Like there was already majority support. Mm. That work was done previously by other um, activists and campaigners and stuff. And, and what that looked like, I mean, many listeners will probably remember this, was essentially hinged around personal story, right? Like with, with yes. when minorities are discriminated against, it, like that can only happen and that can only last when this group of people are... Um, anonymized and then dehumanized um, and vilified. Mm. And so, like, you'll think about the people who were incarcerated on Manus Island and Nauru for such a long period of time. Those people were like faceless, nameless, far away. The only bits of information that the public would hear was 
you know, about fights or riots or, you know, like because if the public knew these people and, you know, their faces and their backgrounds and their stories and their personalities and all the rest of it, like how could most reasonable people couldn't continue to, like, stand by the suffering that they were uh, facing. And so this is where we are at the moment with a lot of transgender people and the issues facing that community. In the last couple of years, there's been an extraordinary amount of exposure for trans rights, trans communities, trans identities, which is fantastic because those, like, transgender identities aren't as familiar as, uh, as, like, gay, lesbian and bisexual identities. And so the, the, the activists and the campaigners and the leader, leaders in the trans community are right now doing that sort of personal storytelling work, which is sort of like, hey, we're just like you in a lot of ways and we're your friends and neighbours and we've already been in your community forever. And yeah. <laughs> like, let's everybody calm down. People still think they can't do anything though. There's a, a, there, there's disempowerment that is absolutely true. There are some people in the community who don't have access to the tools or the ways in to, to do something. But I'm always astounded when I do meet people who uh, have had, you know, the good education, have a good job doing things. And if you mention politics, God forbid, or you mention, um, you know, that you went to a rally or they go, I, I don't really, I'm not, I'm not really into that. And, and I'll always go, oh, what do you mean? And they'll go, oh, well, I just think it's really, I don't know, it's a bit strident and it's a bit, and you go, well, what do you mean? And, and if you drill down a little bit and you keep kind of talking and just sort of peeling back a bit of the layers, Sometimes you can get to a nice conversation where you're saying, you know, you're just allowed to go and march and talk and walk and listen. That's part of what you can do. And and then uh, those people will say to me a week or two later, you know, I really, I, I really thought about that. I really should get a bit more involved. And it's funny. I, I wonder from your point of view, Sally, having seen and and worked with so many people around different kinds of campaigns. What is that? Where does that come from, that idea that, oh, I will give that some thought as much as I give all the other things in my life that I have to give some thought because really Canberra makes decisions that affect me every single day. Mm. I think there is a real Australianism about like not wanting to try too hard or not wanting to care about something too much because it's like a little bit corny or like a little bit bit try hard you know mm. or you know a little bit too earnest and and optimistic and uh, yeah so i i think part of it is a bit of embarrassment around i find that really frustrating i find that so frustrating about us i really do being seen to care about something you know it's mm. the whole oh she'll be right mate when it's like she will not be right unless we all make her right mm. Her, her being the future of our planet. Yes. But then the archetype or the caricature of an activist has been the site of, like, scrutiny and sneering for decades. Yes. Like, going back yes. to the Vietnam War, like, people who were protesting against the Vietnam War were dirty hippies and layabouts and go and get your education. And, it, like, that has just 
continued. And then, you know, the the feminist uh, activists and campaigners, you know, they were just like crazy witches burning their bras and the, the sort of public narratives that come from the media and from mm. people in power who who don't want to be pushed, who don't want to, you know, they don't want people criticising the power they have to make decisions about our lives will sort of try and undermine people who, who try to make change. And so I think people sort of like, oh, no, I don't, I, I wouldn't go to that. That's not my thing. I think it's partly sort of shame and embarrassment because they don't want to be trying too hard and they also don't want to be like a bleeding heart, tree hugging. Mm. People will often say like, oh, I'm not political, I don't care about politics. But they are political. People will have an opinion on, you know, what's happening at their child's school or like how awful it was when, you know, the Biloela girls were going to be deported. You Like... They'll hear something in the media and be like, oh, that's terrible. And that's being political, like having an opinion about about how our lives are run. That's that's politics. Yes. Yeah. I'm sorry to remind you, but yes, you've got to say that to them. <laughs> um, is it true you once taught a Sydney Opera House audience how to be an activist? We did an um, exercise called A Critical Path, which is like part of developing campaign strategy and it's where you sort of work backwards from your goal. So if you say, like, I want to abolish cars. I'm loving the abolish cars, say- Sally. I'm so <laughs> on board you don't even know. I didn't start driving till I was 35. I love it. And so a critical path is like you would start with, like, your ultimate goal, which is all cars are returned to the car amnesty where they're melted down and created public sculptures or whatever. (laughs) And the um, underground public transport infrastructure goes live. So, like, say that's the ultimate goal. And then you'd say, okay, what happens directly before that? And you might say, okay, well, both those things I mentioned are set up and what happens directly before that? Well, there's funding that has been allocated. Okay, what happens directly before that? Oh, right. bill passes parliament, like... I'm, I'm kind of skipping over it. But but you take them through the steps that it, there's actually a pathway that gets there. Yeah. And so, and in the process, you kind of brainstorm things that actually might not be in the critical path at the end, but you kind of like work backwards from the goal. And then you start from the beginning and look forward and say, okay, is there anything we don't need that isn't crucial to our, the critical pathway to our victory? Like, this this project over here or this tactic over here, like, do we actually think that that is not central to it? Our mission here. So we did we did that at the Opera House with this sort of mad flurry of people putting their hands up and me writing on paper plates <laughs> to sort of be stepping stones along the way. So yeah, it was very fun. But this is the thing, it's like, you know, when they asked Kathy McGowan, you know, when she was first running as independent, you know, was it hard? How did you do it? She said, no, it was actually fun. You know, my community was behind me. There was an energy and an, and an, and an enjoyment in it. And you're you're describing a day of teaching uh, you know, a huge hall in a huge auditorium in the town in in the opera house. How to get enthusiastic and you know, it's like it's sort of a bit like Debbie. It's sort of a bit Debbie Downer sometimes the way they just you describe how change can happen. It's like oh, it's going to be really hard, and it is. The book really is clear about how hard it can be and how long the hours are once you're really kind of obsessively in there and time's running out. But there is this other side to it where you're kind of leading people and getting them excited about what it is they're working towards. 
Mm. And the best feeling in the world is winning a campaign. I bet. And you lo- like you lose or well, it's not losing, but you you don't win fifty times for every win, right? But to make change that you really care about is phenomenal. A because you know you've achieved something, and B because it makes the world a better place. And that was also like such an honour while I was at Change.org because. Like, it is extremely hard to make big changes, like changing the definition of marriage, but actually people are winning campaigns every day. People are winning stuff like, you know, allowing, you know, all girls in public schools to wear trousers to school rather than being forced to wear skirts. Like, that was a campaign won last year or, like, you know, forcing coffee cups to be labelled that actually they're not recyclable, you know, so people are more inclined to bring keep cups or like stopping this piece of legislation uh, through the state parliament that there was, you know, like change is actually happening all the time all around us um, and it doesn't have to be this enormous nation-building exercise, although that's pretty fun. Sally Rugg, I could talk to you all day but we have lives <laughs> to lead even though we're in shutdown, do we not? <laughs> Yeah, I'm going to be like, bye, like got to go so busy and then just walk downstairs and (laughs) sit and stare at my cats. (laughs) Well, thank you, Sally, and thank you for your excellent, excellent work over the years and and your uh, incredible advocacy on on TV and on radio where often that's where the cut through can happen. And can't wait to see what you do next. Thank you so much for having me on. It's been a, a real treat. Thank you, Sally. Thanks so much. Julia Zemiro asks, who cares? I'm pumped. I hope you've uh, enjoyed the first episode of Julie Zamira Who Cares. A big thank you to Irrational Fear, of course, our Patreon supporters, the Bertha Foundation, Sally, Mark, and our post producer, Jacob Round, who makes the sound incredible, on equipment from the wonderful people at Rode. Join me next month when I find out who else cares. Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.